We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. The fifth column. 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 Greetings. Welcome back to another installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. Held together by, not duct tape, but masking tape. Not scotch tape. Oh, that's scotch tape? Yeah. Eh, same thing. Don't be gracious. Same tape. thing. Same thing. Uh, delighted to be back with you again. Uh, my name is Camille Foster. I uh, am with some outfit called Freethink Media. I am a doer of many things there. I am joined today uh, by two esteemed gentlemen uh, who really need no introduction, but obviously that's a lie because I'm going to go ahead and introduce them. Uh, Matt Welch of Reason Magazine. Matt, how the hell are you? Doing well. Doing well. How are Great. you? Great. Very good. And, and joining us today, remotely via the interwebs, given yeah. to us by Al Gore, yes. uh, is uh, Michael Moynihan. Daily Beast. I wish everyone Vice could News. see the setup that we have yeah, here. It is in amazing. It's incredibly high tech. Yeah. yeah. I'm, coming, I'm coming to you uh, via Skype, uh, <laughs> a Swedish company, but I'm coming to you from Norway. Yeah. Uh, a very grim afternoon in Oslo as it has been for the past three days. As it, as it, as it almost always is. Um, it almost always is. It's, it's a wonderful thing for me to come back to Scandinavia. I get off the plane. The sky is slate gray pissing down and it's going to be light until 11 p.m. It's freezing. And I got it on Sunday in which every single thing is closed. So if you have a headache, as I do, as I did on Sunday, there is nowhere to buy headache pills because in Norway, like like Sweden, you can only buy them at the state-run pharmacy. So you can't go into the 7-Eleven and alleviate the hangover from your flight in which you drank uh, quite a bit of cognac. Well, that's so. that's for the best. That's <laughs> for the cognac best. on an airplane? What kind well, of amateur I, I action I, is that? I, I don't know. I flew Lufthansa, and there was this uh, wonderful Teutonic uh, woman. I believe she worked there, uh, who kept on coming over and offering me cognac, and I kept on saying yes. So, <laughs> so well, we, well, we do have some business to attend to. Uh, first and foremost, please, please check us out at wethefifth.com, uh, on Twitter at wethefifth, on Facebook at fb.com. Did you know you could type that and get to Facebook? Yeah, nope. you didn't, but nope. you can. Um, forward slash fifth column. Well, the fifth column. Uh, we did get some listener feedback. Um, our listener feedback has been generally great, uh, occasionally racist, mostly against Taiwanese people, which is very strange. I very don't understand strange. that. Uh, we abhor racism here at the, uh, at the fifth column. Uh, but you're welcome to practice it because you have every right to be an asshole. Uh, there may occasionally be strong language on this podcast, and I apologize for that in advance. Uh, but no, you, you don't, because by... you just said you just apologized <laughs> after saying the word asshole. Well, well that's that's only because Matt had loaded us up with uh, with a great deal of profanity at the front end of this show. Totally inappropriate. Thank you. Uh, but we will uh, we'll deal with that. Hopefully, uh, I am sufficiently enthusiastic this week. I feel pumped up. I feel jacked up. Um, that's I because you're going to go on a you're going to go on a PBS show like a jackass. We told you <laughs> not to do this. You're going to go on Point Taken, a show that I've been on a couple of times. Uh-huh. Camille's been on once. Yes. I lost both times. Camille won. Let's point that out. It's true. And you're going to go on and like be you're going to argue the asshole position no. on like transgender stuff. No, I'm aren't not. you? I'm not going to talk about any of it. If you want to know what I'm talking about, if you want to know what's happening, you can go check it out at Point Taken. The video should be there unless it was a total calamity. Um, <laughs> it is possible because that topic is a minefield that my career, whatever that is, will be over um, as of the end of the day. Uh, But uh, it should be fun. Looking forward to it. Um, it, We do have a lot of listeners. So two two more things on listener feedback. Two more things on listener feedback, then we'll get to the show. Um, We have a lot of listeners who are listening while they work out. 
which is nice. It's nice to know that we get you energized and excited. Run, fatty, run. Run faster. You can do it. Uh, very happy about that. Um, but we also had someone write in today and ask uh, what you gentlemen read in the mornings because they want to be well apprised of what's happening in the world. Uh, and apparently they think that, uh, that we have some, some good sensibility about this. So what publication is indispensable to you? First of all, assuming that Moynihan is awake in the morning is just the first mistake. <laughs> uh, he's obviously... I, I, I got up today at noon, but that was in Norway, so it's different. <laughs> uh, I'm and, I got really, and I got really, like, to the people who are working out, I got really drunk last night. <laughs> and I didn't work out today. I just kind of, you know, ambled out of bed. And then I uh, read... Uh, the few uh, news. I like traveling, by the way, because everywhere you go, people give you print copies of newspapers, which I don't get as much as I, I used to. But uh, the indispensable ones here is I, I do read uh, the Journal and the Times. I think the Times is the best newspaper in America. It has a million flaws, but they do really, really great uh, foreign coverage. But you know what? I'm one of these guys that's gone uh, full Twitter. You know, I get a lot of my stuff just scrolling through Twitter to see what people are talking about. Right. Mostly people with eggs. Those are the people who are yeah, talking yeah, exactly, about things. Yeah, exactly. People are saying like, what what's say. hot on Stormfront today? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am, I'm af- afraid. I'm someone who uh, is uh, like a, a, a dead tree romantic. I used to work uh, – and Camille, you have no idea what I'm talking about here. But I used to work doing paste-up at a newspaper. I, I've, I've been a typesetter. Uh, so, so much is my uh, fondness for the uh, physical production of a newspaper. I used to operate a half-tone camera. Camille, you should see the look know. on Camille's I face. He's no just idea like, what you're talking about. Grandpa farted in his pants again yeah. here. Um, but uh, I basically consume media by, by Twitter. I subscribe to the New York Times. I basically glance at the sports section, uh, just to, which is actually pretty good uh, uh, sports writing there. Um, and for the most part, I uh, filtered everything on Twitter of people and publications that I find are interesting to mm-hmm. follow. Um, and now my seven-year-old daughter is like, oh, you have a crush on Twitter. Uh, she writes <laughs> she writes on the, you know, drawings on the walls of like, uh, no, Twitter is a monster and all these kinds of things. So uh, I think my wife She's has right. poisoned uh, her mind against me about uh, my uh, Twitter addiction. You have to pay attention to your child. Nah, it's Not really. You know, she's uh, – I know we're digressing wildly here, but she, uh, as, uh, as Michael uh, and Camille both know, is a, uh, is a high-quality artist uh, for a seven-year-old. That's true. Uh, she made her first sale ever, a first commercial bit of uh, artistic sale. To and it was, a family member. Uh, no, we were at uh, we were, there was a flea market uh, at uh, it, it, that we uh, tried to dump a bunch of our old uh, you know Donny Osmond records at uh, this weekend, and I encouraged her today you should sell some of your stuff. She sold um, a drawing that she did of Bernie Sanders and uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, in which I think uh, uh, Hillary was uh, saying uh, blah, 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 blah. And Bernie's like, hey, Hillary, let me talk. So it's a a pro-Bernie caricature of a Democratic debate. She sold it to a Trump supporter uh, who was like wearing a Make America a Great Act cap on again. So there we have it. Matt Welch's daughter is drawing political propaganda. Um, Wait a second. But the more important, you don't bury the lead here. You found a Trump supporter in Carroll Garden. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they uh, it was clear that they had taken uh, the ferry from Staten Island uh, and were just following. They're making the uh, the uh, flea market circuit. Uh, throughout, they were there like five minutes before it opened up. So, like, they were hardcore wow. about it, and uh, and and they're already on their second uh, uh, circulation through the uh, through the tour. So, uh, yeah, no, badgered me about like, hey, you know, you shouldn't vote for Hillary. I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm not gonna vote for Hillary. I'm, <laughs> I'm not who you think I am. He couldn't possibly know. He was there doing the Lord's work. It was a missionary trip to Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn. 
uh, to try to persuade folks not to vote for uh, for Hillary or Bernie, uh, but to vote for uh, for the Donald, um, who is consolidating support. And we'll get to that in a moment. But but Moynihan, you you are at the Oslo uh, Freedom Forum. What are you doing at the Oslo Freedom Forum? What is the Oslo Freedom Forum? Why are you there? God, there's so many questions. Um, I have been to the Oslo Freedom Forum most years. I mean, a few that I've missed. Um, but this year I am doing a few panels. Um, I was on a panel um, the first night I was here, which was kind of funny because it was some tech people talking. So what, in this panel, that was about activism. So there were activists from all sorts of um, crappy dictatorships um, talking to a panel of people about what they should do as activists. And this is the funny thing about tech people. There was a wonderful, wonderful woman uh, from Cu- Cuba whose father is the, she, she's the daughter of Oswald Paella, everyone knows him, he was a fantastic activist, was killed by the Cuban government, or they claim that he was killed by the Cuban government. Suspicious and car so crash. Was, yeah, a car crash. She was uh, talking about dissemination of information. It was really fascinating stuff. And um, there were some tech people on the panel who are very Silicon Valley, and they're talking to a woman from Cuba in that obfuscatory uh, tech language, and then saying, you know, you really need to look at your analytics in, in, uh, in Cuba, who's going to your website, like how long they're reading articles. And I had to uh, graciously inform the person after the fact, that's why I was being gracious, that that such thing is not possible in Cuba because people don't have internet connections. <laughs> so that was, that was, a, was a bit of a bummer for him. Oh. Um, and, then, and then tomorrow morning, um, I am doing the Students for Liberty panel of uh, Students for Liberty uh, chapters all around the world, including people from Venezuela, people uh, from here in Scandinavia, uh, a lot of Latin Americans. Uh, so it'll be pretty fun. So basically, it's a it's a big festival for dissidents, and uh, it's a human rights conference. The, the Davos and of human rights is how I've heard the it da- described. Davos of human rights, as yeah. it was described, I think, in the FT. Um, this morning, I, I saw one thing that I'll, I'll point people to this kid whose name is Bjorn Ehler, and Bjorn was one of the, the uh, survivors of the Anders Breivik massacre oh. in Utoy. And he was in the water. He led people to uh, the water, um, a bunch of kids that were following him. Uh, and Breivik came at them in a police uniform and said, um, we got the bad guy. He's gone. And then he raised his pistol to Bjorn and fired and missed. And Bjorn dove into the water and he got away. So he had been kind of frozen with fear, mm. uh, a Labor Party uh, kid supporter, uh, until about a, a year and a half ago when he started kind of coming out and talking about it. He, weirdly enough, as he didn't mention this in his speech, but he's since left the Labor Party and become, I think, more of a classical liberal. Um, and it was a really tremendous uh, presentation. His story is amazing. And you can find him online. And he's, he's written a little bit about his experience, uh, Bjorn Eiler. So it's stuff like that here in Oslo. You get a lot of really interesting people. Uh, the guys from uh, that very useful Twitter feed that I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard of uh, called Raqqa is being slaughtered silently. These two guys from Raqqa, who, by the way, really interestingly, are total hipsters. They literally, they escaped Raqqa. They live in another country in Europe now um, that shall not be mentioned. And they look like they live in Brooklyn and they are funny and they are the bravest people I've ever met in my life. You feel kind of two inches tall when you have kids telling you that they print, they actually print dissident literature in Raqqa. Yeah. Um, and they distribute it at night. And four of their group have, have been um, uh, uh, either assassinated or executed by ISIS. Wow. And so it's a very, very risky uh, thing. And he was t- telling me, these guys were telling me about how they got the material. And they've, one of the interesting things is they've made – 
a version of ISIS's magazine, Dibbuk, uh-huh. with a slight letter change, which the, means something slightly different in Arabic. And it looks exactly the same, but it has sort of liberal, um, you know, freedom-oriented messages that insult ISIS. So it's that kind of thing, and there's a lot of really, really cool people here, and their talks will be on the OsloFreedomForum.com website, I think, probably by Friday. Now, uh, Thor Halverson is the organizer of this stuff, and he's got familial Um, connections to Venezuela, and I know mm -hmm. just before we went on air, you talked about you just got liquored up with a bunch of Venezuelans uh, last night. Yeah, Uh, yeah. crazy. I mean... Well, the one thing to say about Thor is that his his cousin is Leopoldo Lopez, the opposition leader, the biggest leader of the opposition, who has prison for um, well over a year now. And there is a great mix of um, Venezuelan uh, dissidents here. And it's not ideologically uniform. There are social Democrats. There are sort of American-style liberals. There are classical liberals. There's Catholics. Um, and, you know, you're talking to people who come from a very, very wealthy country who live in exile. One I met who lived in Prague, which is really interesting because she got a uh, – the Havel Institute is funding um, her organization. So she left and she's not allowed to go back. Um, and I met a lawyer last night who was not allowed to go back. Um, and a number of these people that are basically trying to, you know, deal with what's happening there in a president that has a 15 percent um, approval rating – and, you know, what's the next step? And so everybody that I talk to is bracing for the collapse and is expecting the collapse. And uh, one, one person told me something interesting, that the hardest thing is the factionalism in the army. Because in a Latin American country, when a country collapses, yeah. you need the army on your side. And that is, there's a lot of old army officers that are Chavistas and uh, very loyal to Chavez. So they're all very, 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 very worried. There was no optimism that this crisis will at, at least create a new government. Um, there wasn't a lot of optimism, but there are a lot of great, interesting people here. Yeah, that story has sort of begun to, to not be in the headlines uh, nearly as much this week. I guess for Americans, it's kind of far away. Uh, but, but certainly we should uh, keep an eye on this story, and, and we'll be talking about it again in the coming weeks because that situation is only going to continue to develop. Uh, we do have a couple of other things that we wanted to discuss today. Uh, Trump consolidating his support. Uh, Bernie Sanders is an arsonist. Uh, we, uh, what, what on earth do, uh, the Trump and Sanders and their, their development, what could that possibly mean for the two parties? Uh, and we'll revisit the Freddie Gay case, uh, and maybe talk a little Black Lives Matter. Gray. Uh, that's gray. what I said. Gray. I said gray. gray. You said gay. No, you oh, I, you I'm thinking Marvin Gay. Right no, I'm thinking away. Marvin Gay. You're getting ready for tonight's uh, PBS appearance. I love Marvin Gay. We're not going <laughs> to talk about that. Um, and then some idiot wrote this. We haven't talked about that. I'm sure somebody has something. Uh, and parting shots, I wanted to share uh, sort of my favorite thing that I've read this week because someone tells me that we're not sufficiently optimistic. That sometimes we get we get a little pessimistic. That's you two guys, man. That's sometimes totally we're a little optimistic. overly critical. That's so, true. So we'll fix that. That's true. So we'll fix that. Reason and Reason Magazine, Matt should plug his own magazine, who has uh, I believe a piece recently, right? The next issue about optimism. Oh, is that right? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I saw some, maybe. I saw maybe, <laughs> maybe there's an old, oh, you don't even pay attention. Yeah. Uh, no, that, YouTube, that was YouTube. the nation. That was the Friends nation. Those two Schenker. magazines are frequently convinced, confused <laughs> with one another. Um, but uh, to start here, I mean, Trump really does seem to be consolidating support among Republicans. There was a recent Gallup poll had him at uh, 30% unfavorable, 66% favorable. Back in March of this year, he's around 53%. Uh, there was a lot of concern amongst Republicans that he wouldn't be able to do that. Um, at the same time, 
Hillary Clinton is still struggling to put away Bernie Sanders. We are in the run-up to the California primary. Um, it looks like Bernie isn't going any damn place. Uh, he isn't content to, to fade away quietly. Um, he plans to take this all the way to the nomination. He started a nasty fight with party boss uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, backing her primary opponent um, where, while she tries to stay respectful and say she will, uh, she still wants to work with uh, Bernie to to build up the party. I like the concept of Debbie Wasserman Schultz trying to stay respectful. Yeah, trying to stay yeah. respectful. That, you, I, there would have been air quotes, but I know you can't see me. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, the supporters of Bernie Sanders though are also, I mean. To say the least, they're growing uh, increasingly despondent, I think, uh, with the prospect of Sanders losing, uh, even launching some sort of a legal battle um, in California to try to extend the voter registration date until the actual date of the primary because unfairness, stolen elections. Um, My sense is that this can only, only, only impair Hillary's chances. I'm not sure if there's a Bernie Sanders movement that is really going to grow out of all of this, but I, I wonder what you two, how you two read the situation. I uh, I spend a lot of times haunting the halls of uh, MSNBC. Uh, and as speaking of which, this will horrify everybody uh, that can possibly listen to this. Uh, off-air chatter between me and the Reverend Al Shar- Sharpton, uh, at his suggestion, uh, we're going to start a, uh, a Prince cover band together. Hmm. He was. He wasn't even. He wasn't even kidding. No, we were. We were. Uh, you joked. No, 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 I'm sure. I'm, sorry. I'm sure I'm he sorry. was kidding. Al Sharpton. Al Sharpton. Matt yeah. Welch were talking about starting up a Prince cover band and getting some dance steps going. Uh, yes, that happened uh, recently. It's the kind of thing I would only say in a podcast, not uh, in public. Oh. Right. Right. Um, because this this is nothing like being in public. Uh, it's only it's <laughs> only worse. <laughs> it's much worse. Uh, uh, so a couple of things. One is that uh, right now is as divided and, and nasty as it's is starting to feel, and uh, all of us who are not. Members of the Democratic Party can only rub our hands with glee uh, watching this all happen. Um, Still, uh, something like 72 percent of Bernie Sanders supporters expect to support Hillary. And compared to this exact same time in the last election cycle, the number was like 60 percent of Hillary supporters said at that point that they were prepared to to support Obama. Of course, they all came uh, back on the reservation. So is it as divided as it feels? It it isn't as divided as it was or divisive as it was last time, for which I – there's, there's fairly recent polling, though, like recent polling from, I believe, this week that has 66 percent of Sanders supporters saying that they would actually support Clinton. About 20 percent are saying they would support Trump. Which OK, is crazy. So, yeah, the, it's actually not crazy. I don't. Well, I mean, I mean, well, it's, crazy, it's, crazy for her, surprising for so these those Democratic voters. But it's trending down. Oh, yes, it's trending downwards. And the longer that Bernie stays in it, the more it's going to happen. And I blame this. All the blame. In uh, professional democratic circles, uh, including a lot of our uh, friends of ours or colleagues of ours, um, is all towards Bernie. Like, you know, he's staying in it too long. He's being negative. He's going after Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Why doesn't he realize that math is not on his side and all this kind of stuff? It's his fault. It's the Bernie bros. I put the blame almost uh, entirely in this case on the Hillary machine and the Hillary kind of uh, uh, support. And here's why. From the beginning of all of this, first of all, Hillary had a 50 percentage point lead on Bernie Sanders one year ago. It's incredible. Yeah. She All she does everywhere she's run for election is blow leads. She had a 50 point lead on Bernie Sanders. She had a 33 point lead on Rick Lazio. Back in the day, she had a 20 point lead on Obama. She loses huge leads. That's what I, she does. I get the sense that she's unpopular. Uh, she's uh, bad at campaigning. But what have they done to go against Bernie? Okay, uh, they got him a couple on uh, policy issues like, oh, he's the idealist and she's the pragmatist or whatever. But for the most part, what you see is them going 
after Bernie bros. They're going after the racism and sexism of Bernie supporters or, right. the, or the alleged racism and sexism of Bernie supporters. And they're these young, dumb people. They're not even Democrats. They're insu- they've gone to the Democratic playbook over the last six or eight years, which is totally personalize it, make it about your own moral failings and your own privilege. Right. Uh, and what happens when people are on, are on the receiving ends of a critique like that, particularly those who've used that kind of critique themselves, you kind of take it personally. It's not just simply, oh, we disagree on issues or how to yeah. get there. It's that you just called me a racist or a sexist or a bro uh, and all this kind of stuff. Those types of uh, 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 insults tend to stick. So I think we're starting to see a hardening among the Sanders people. Like if you're going to spend the next two months insulting me like this, I'm going to either sit on my hands. I'm going to try. I've, I've heard a lot of people say they want to go to Philadelphia and cause a ruckus. So we're, yeah, yeah, we're yeah. suddenly going to have yeah, we'll, the contended, uh, contentious uh, uh, major party convention will be the Democrats and not yeah. the Republicans. Yeah. What, what do you think about that one? I mean, I, I've certainly I've certainly seen. Um, well, I'll just let you respond. Go ahead. No, I mean, I think that, you know, I think Matt's right in a lot of a lot of ways. I, I think they're going to see this dissipate when Bernie Sanders supporters realize that the other option is, you know, causing a ruckus at the convention, you know, arguing about this ad infinitum on Twitter, insulting people, et cetera, and doing it's sort of basically what's what's been happening now. But when push comes to shove and somebody says to you and impresses upon you a week before uh, one has to pull the lever in November, that the other option here is this, you know, troglodytic conspiracy theorist. One would imagine <laughs> that this would mobilize people to get out and, and, actually, and actually vote. But, you know, I, the, 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 the campaign, I mean, look, the way that the Clinton campaign has handled this is pretty interesting because everyone says all the time, but how long have we heard the math is not on Bernie's side? She has a million more votes, et cetera, et cetera, all of which is, is reasonably true. I mean, there's mm-hmm. some paths that are kind of crazy that won't happen. So I think the best, uh, you know, response for the Clinton campaign right now is benign neglect. Just ignore these people. Yeah. And if you ignore them and ignore them and ignore them, there's more likely to come out because I think Matt's point is right. I mean, the idea that Bernie Sanders supporters are hostile to women. I mean, it's funny. By the way, the funny thing about this is I have so many people that I know, friends of mine, that are on the left that really hate the left sort of critique when it hits them. So there's a lot of people on the left that, that have an instinct to play sort of gender politics, identity yes, politics. Totally. You, you see it in two ways in which they respond negatively. One is anti-Semitism. Say when, when people are quick on the draw and say your criticism of Israel is anti-Semitism, they say, oh God, you're always using that card. And now we see it with the Bernie people when it comes to sexism. They're like, hey, we're actual leftists you know, we're more left wing than you are. And you're saying that we're criticizing that, you're, that you know, you're criticizing our candidate out of out of uh, your candidate out of sexism. So it's really funny to see their playbook kind of used against them. The, the quick jump to, you know, some sort of ism, classism, racism, sexism. Yeah. And to see all these really lefty Bernie Sanders supporters saying, isn't it crazy? They're accusing us of sexism, us. And it's like, yeah, no, no, we've all been there. We've all we've all gotten that sort of unfair charge in the past. And it's funny to see it rebound on them. I think it's interesting that you uh, you alluded to them not supporting the crazy uh, conspiracy theorist uh, when, in fact, like a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters now believe that it's rigged. The convention is rigged. There's all sorts of things happening in the, in the background that are totally oh, crowding oh, yeah, out yeah. Bernie. Uh, totally. What are we going to yeah. do? Clinton yeah, yeah, yeah. is, is be, working be for OPEC. I mean, yeah, that, that is clear. all part yeah. of it as well. 
No, no, no. To be clear, I want to say that I was I was speaking in their voice. Oh, okay. The conspiracy, the conspiracy theories that come yes. um, from the Sanders people, whether it's you know the the neoliberalism that pulls the strings of everything, whether it's the whole system is rigged against us and it was rigged a short time ago, when in actual fact they just haven't been paying attention. They don't know how the system works, and so they didn't adapt to it. But yeah, no, the the conspiracy theorizing is is pretty impressive on on both ends. Yeah, yeah, there's there's quite a bit of it. Now, I did want to play um, two quick clips for you guys. Um, we've got a we've got sort of this thing where we know Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are both uh, populists. Uh, they both uh, have a lot of the same sentiments that they express frequently. But when I heard this, um, I thought it was pretty surprising. So here's here's Bernie Sanders. It goes without saying that I condemn all forms of violence, but I hope the media does its job, not exaggerate what happened in Nevada and elsewhere. So I can't predict, you know, what happens. I certainly will condemn any and all forms of violence. Uh, but we are bringing in a lot of new people into the political process, uh, people who have never gone to a convention before. Uh, and they hope very much that their voices will be heard. And let me repeat what I have said again. Uh, the Democratic Party, the leadership of the Democratic Party, has a very fundamental choice to make. Uh, and that choice is, do we open the doors to many, many millions of people, often working class people, people who are working maybe two or three jobs uh, to make ends meet, to young people who have never perhaps voted in their lives? Do we say, hey, Come on in. We're delighted to have you. We're excited to have you. This is great for the Democratic Party. Or do we say, hey, you know, we, you're not really one of us. We're too busy going to fancy fundraisers at, you know, $50,000 a, a plate. And you're really not what this party wants. So, I mean, this is Bernie talking about all the new people he's bringing in. But, but it's important to note how the clip opens up. Um, it is pretty much Bernie suggesting that there could be it could get messy at the convention. And he, he says of course, I hate violence. I'm opposed to violence. But I hope the media does their job. I thought to myself, eh, that sounds really familiar. And then I found this. We'll win before getting to the convention. But I can tell you, if we didn't, and if we're 20 votes short, or if we're, if we're you know, 100 short, and we're at 1,100 and somebody else is at 500 or 400, because we're way ahead of everybody, I don't think you can say that we don't get it automatically. I think it would be, I think you'd have riots. I think you'd have riots. You know, we have, we're, I'm representing a tremendous, many, many millions of people. In many cases, first-time voters. These are people that haven't voted because they never believed in the system. They didn't like candidates, et cetera, et cetera, that are 40 and 50 and 60 years old. And they've never voted you, before. Many, many of those people, many Democrats, many independents coming in. That's what the big story is, really, Chris. I mean, the really big story is how many people are voting in these primaries. The, the numbers are astronomical. Now, if you disenfranchise those people and you say, well, I'm sorry, but you're 100 votes short, even though the next one is 500 votes short, I think you would have problems like you've never seen before. Well, I think... I think it would. I think bad things would happen. I really do. I believe that. I wouldn't lead it, but I think bad things would happen. This, if, you, if you disenfranchise those people, you'll have problems like you've never seen before. To me, this. Uh, I, I know you're you're drawing a. Uh, a uh, an immediate parallel to the kind of uh, rumblings of uh -huh. potential violence there. Yep. Um, but for me, my mind goes to uh, uh, something that we should have been noticing and I think we have noticed from the beginning of this presidential campaign, which is it's really remarkable that both major parties uh, are seeing that the person with the juice, um, even though Bernie Sanders isn't going to win, 
He's got the juice. Uh, he's got like young people super excited. He's changed things. The, the 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 person with the juice on both sides is the person who is explicitly against the party that they're running for, uh, hmm. the nomination of. Bernie Sanders is an independent socialist, right? He hasn't been a member of the Democratic Party. He's going in there with a huge critique of how the Democratic Party is run. He's going after the DNC chair right now mm-hmm. um, and all this kind of stuff. And people are lighting onto it because both parties are, in many respects, uh, among their own base, totally discredited. Donald Trump ran against the base and or ran against the uh, the not the base but the uh, the organs of the Republican Party again and again and again. He ran against the uh, fundraisers. He once again went against the Republican media. He went against Fox News and won. This is incredible. This hasn't been attempted before, let alone pulled off. Um, I think, it, and this then bleeds over into. To the situation where we have two candidates now uh, who are historically unpopular. So this is uh, it's a sign of there's something on not, maybe not on the verge of collapsing, but there's something imploding uh, uh, here in our modern two party politics, which is kind of great on one hand um, in terms of for those of us who feel totally underserved or poorly served by the choices of those people. But it's also kind of terrifying what replaces this way that we've done things uh, over the long period of time. And what's regardless of uh, what you think of of any one of the individual like three big people still standing, um, they're all kind of awful and and uh, support really, really, truly awful uh, policies. Uh, so uh, in the short term, it's kind of uh, ugly, but the long term picture is, hey, this is a pretty interesting expression of absolute disdain for the way both parties have been run. Do we still have Moynihan on the phone? Yeah, by what, the way? what would you yeah, say to that, Moynihan? Yeah, no, I mean, look, it's interesting being in Europe right now because. You know, everyone wants to talk about Trump and everybody wants to talk about uh, Sanders. And the interesting thing is in our campaign, mostly coming from Bernie Sanders, we have a desire and a desire from his supporters to become more like Europe. And what is happening with the two-party system is we're becoming more like Europe. This is exa- if you want if you want people on the sort of fringes of, of, you know, the right and the left to have these successful populist movements, you're inevitably going to become more like Europe. So in the country that I'm in right now, Norway... You have something called the Progress Party, which is a kind of far-right party, and they're upset about immigration. They are, you know, not like the mainstream conservative party called Hoyga here, which is a, you know, it's a, you know, it's an establishment party. The Labour Party is an establishment party, and then they have this sort of radical kind of socialist wing. In the fracturing of the American political scene, looks exactly like Europe. And what happens in Europe, as you see, in the past, I, I could say probably 15 years, but let me just say the past two years, is that those fringes are going to exert a very, very strong influence. So, you know, I mean, look, we are, to Bernie's point, we are becoming more European. So the two-party system, if it breaks up, let's pretend in a way, and I don't think it'll happen, but if it breaks up and there's a Trump party on the right and 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 a sort of Paul Ryan party, and on the left, we have a kind of Hillary Clinton, Debbie, Debbie Wasserman Schultz party, and then a Sanders party. What you have is every country in Western Europe at that point. You have a yeah. mainstream conservative party, a mainstream sort of left of center party, and these other parties on the fringes that enter coalition governments. We obviously don't do that, but that in our case, 
will make life very difficult for people. And, you know, there's a part of me that wants to see that happen. And, and I do want to I want to shake it up a little bit. For sure. And I, and I do want to talk a little bit more um, about what is likely to happen to the parties. But I mean, just just to push back a, a touch, uh, Matt, I, I think it's noteworthy uh, that when Trump talks about like violence and hating it and abhorring it, but it might happen, it could happen, and it's important for us to do something. And Bernie says verbatim the same thing. I, I uh, actually, and there, and there really isn't any sort of outrage afterwards. I, think th- I mean, it, it just seems... No, there was, there was outrage on the left. and I mean, I, I, I've spent too much time at MSNBC. Yeah. They were hitting the outrage meter as high as possible out of what happened in Nevada, which is what Bernie mm-hmm. was referring to. Yes, totally. He was referring to something that had happened. Trump was talking about something that may happen. Well, Trump, no, I think, I think was but using it... he's also it at, talking about the convention as well. And what it's saying that it could get messy. That is that is the remark that he made. I I I took okay. less of that, and okay. maybe it's because my Trump dar is different than my Bernie dar. Um, although that, that I, is that is the argument that I'm making as someone who wrote a more or less a cover story called Bernie's Bad Ideas. Um, <laughs> I, I I I stand to no one uh, uh, about that. Uh, I, I think what Bernie was saying is that the majority of what we have done has not. Uh, had you know, let's not blow this one incident out of proportion. Yeah. Whereas Trump was saying, "Hey, look, if we're close, uh, I can't control these people." At uh, the moment that Trump made those remarks, it was widely understood and I think deployed as something like a threat because back then it was still possible that he wouldn't, you know, uh, Cadillac his way to the nomination, which he's got now. Well, and I it's mean, definitely if you if you look mm-hmm. at uh, Daily Coast which nobody really pays attention to as much as they used to. But Coase himself, Marcos, uh, whatever his last name is, he has been uh, banging the drum on, on Bernie being not unlike uh, 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 Donald Trump. And, you know, he had a, I, I saw it, I came across it on Twitter or something, which I thought was pretty bold. And he said, look, it's Bernie, it's not Bernie's supporters that are the problem. It's Bernie that's the problem because he, just like, and, and you know, Trump refuses to, outright denounce this violence he says well you know it's it's overplayed and let's look at it in context etc and i agree i also agree with matt though that you know trump is explicit in saying if you punch somebody in the face i will pay your legal bills i mean that's, <laughs> that's actually in, in, in a different yeah that, level. that that's Madness. a little further let's go in a little further, a little uh, further. I, as as i've said before he doesn't he doesn't use uh, euphemisms and he almost always crosses the line uh whatever whatever that means um but to talk a little bit more narrowly about what is likely to happen to the two parties um as a as a consequence of this election uh it does seem like we are on track for some kind of pretty dramatic and significant political realignment here. And, and it's been talked about in, in, in the past, particularly because of the demographic changes that are taking place in the United States. But I, I, there is this piece uh, by David Bernstein, which has uh, been making the rounds um, at Politico called uh, This is What the Future of American Politics Looks Like. And he lays out is a pretty long argument. I, I disagree fundamentally with parts of it. But but the fundamental thing that he does make an argument about is that the the, the culture war is effectively over, that that has been won, and that this need to uh, sort of talk directly to evangelicals about all these various social issues is dissipating, and that there is going to be sort of a populist coalition um, on the right uh, and another coalition on the left, which might have some populists in it, but might also be a place where people who advocate for free markets and the like find a home. Um, I don't know if that's if that's a good argument. I, I I wonder if there isn't like a populist revolution going on as well, uh, and that people who advocate for crazy things like free markets and free trade um, might 
see very dark days ahead. I wonder wonder what your take on that is. I, uh, the, the notion that the culture war is over, I think, is a mistake of defining the last war by where exactly it was fought. I think in, in many respects, the, Donald, the rise of Donald Trump is a purely distilled culture war in the sense that people are flocking to him out of a sense of shared cultural grievance at being dismissed, looked down upon, condescended to, uh, seen as flyover country or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the only common thread that I think that you find in Trump's uh, support base are people who are sick of Michael Moynihan uh, in particular (laughs) and the way that uh, he lords over uh, them Andy Kaufman style and says, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm from New York. I'm from Hollywood yeah, here. I'm from Hollywood. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and looks down at them, which is a cultural sense of grievance, much sure. more than it is has anything to do with policy or anything else like that. So just because Donald Trump is a thrice-married, short-fingered Vulgarian who doesn't give a shit about abortion, very little about guns and other kinds of things that were supposed to be flashpoints about uh, – transgender bathrooms. He just like doesn't care about those hot point issues. And you have, um, you know, uh, 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 alleged thinkers like uh, Bill, our friend Bill Maher, who Michael's going to go on his show uh, on Friday. Um, uh, with, you, with Bernie Sanders. Uh, you know, Should be some fireworks. That's, that's, that's Make, true. Making the, uh, the hopeful argument that uh, because Trump transgresses those places on the culture war battlefield from last time around, that means the culture war is over. No, I think it just means the culture war is different. It expressed yeah, itself yeah. differently. Um, where, as for where like the you know, uh, free trade capitalists go. <laughs> That's a good yeah. question. Yeah. Uh, uh, we'll pro- I'll, I'll probably nominate uh, for later um, for the Some Idiot Wrote This, a piece that uh, Bill Crystal wrote um, for the Weekly Standard. So I don't want to uh, leave the powder dry. But I think it's really interesting to watch people who are in the never Trump category, who are in the like, you know, anyone but Trump. Yeah. And then in parentheses, Except for that icky libertarian guy, whoever it might end up are, being. Are there people who are saying that? Yeah, there are sure. people who, who feel never Trump, but I'm not. I'm definitely not messing around with the libertarian David uh, David Harshani, who yeah. uh, like uh, we run his column at Reason. Well, um, you, should stop, you should stop that. Uh, I like David. I, uh, I, I disagree with him about some stuff. But uh, he, uh, he said, well, you know, because Gary Johnson has the wrong from his point of view uh, answer on whether you should – and it's wrong from, uh, I think, uh, Camille's point of view, maybe all of ours mm-hmm. – um, that you should, you know, a, a, uh, a Jewish baker should be forced to make a wedding cake for Nazis, uh, which is a very <laughs> important public policy issue. I think we can all agree. Um, because Gary Johnson answered that question wrong, then no, that, that's not possible. Right. Ben Dominic from The Federalist, who is yeah, libertarian-leaning, yeah. um, uh, doesn't like the fact that the LP candidate is likely to be pro-choice instead of everyone has their reason right. why they're anyone but Trump thing yeah. can't be a libertarian. But it, to me, it regardless of take the libertarian quotient out of it, even though it's the only real third party that has it's going to be on all 50 ballots. But it just shows how entrenched the thinking of the two party system is. Yeah, uh, that's why you have all these hawks. Uh, coming out for Hillary with the uh, with the realignment, though, I guess the thing that does give me some comfort is the fact that in this particular cycle, there really does seem to be some space for the third party to to get a little bit of shine. As they yeah, say, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's funny because 
I hear I've heard a lot of this about um, Gary Johnson. I have heard a lot of it about now about Bill Weld too, the mm-hmm. vice presidential candidate of the Libertarian Party ticket. I mean, yeah, this is going to be a real consequential uh, thing. <laughs> but it's it's kind of it's kind of funny to hear because you know I think there's a lot of that uh, ideological purity test that libertarians are especially good at that has you know on the Republican side sort of produced Donald Trump. In a way, I mean this this idea that you know we talked about this with Charles Cook of the the Tea Party abrogating the responsibilities for X, Y, and Z. I'm throwing up my hands and voting for Donald Trump. People have said this to me. I've heard it before, but you know it's it is funny to see like you know in Gary Johnson, you can't look at a guy like Gary Johnson about this sort of gay cake. You know, as Matt points out, the the dumbest kind of public policy position. We're getting really upset about this. I just don't think Gary Johnson, having talked to him a few times, really has thought that deeply about it. I think that you could probably he's a guy that could probably be convinced that his position is probably not the right one, you know, within five minutes. I don't think that, you know, his his shifting positions are, you know, slightly less worrying than Donald Trump's ever shifting positions. But to the culture war, I think Matt makes a very good point that I haven't thought of is that the shift in what type of culture war we're fighting. Yeah. The old the old culture war. And I believe it was Michael Lind's piece that you, you, you were referencing, um, you know, a former conservative too, Michael Lind, says that, you know, the, the culture war is over and, and the right lost. Yes, but that's too simple of a way of looking at it. I, I mean, I remember, you know, the trenches of the culture war in the, in the 1990s, which was fought much with much more vigor than, you know, the contract with America was. Anything economic was like, you know, because you're, you're, you're Bill Clinton was a free trader. You know, that was a culture war time. And God, was it a colossal loss. But the thing about it is you can pay less attention to those people who fight culture war issues and choose presidents that way. But I think of them as like, you know, the solder army or like the werewolf after, you know, World War II, they've lost, but they're, si- they're going around taking pot shots and like sort of blowing up tanks periodically. They're still going to be problematic for conservatives, especially in the House and in the Senate. But, you know, the big, big issue they've lost. But, you know, you still have to deal with the Huckabees of the world, you know, in 2020. Yeah. 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 Well, we'll have to see how that shakes out. Um, I did want to pivot to this, uh, this Freddie Gray story, uh, so we could chat about it for a little bit. Um, this, uh, case, case stemming from the death of a young man, uh, in Baltimore I think it was last summer, uh, that this happened, if I'm not mistaken. Um, there were six officers who were very quickly charged, uh, in, with relationship to his death. He was, he was, he died while in police custody, um, this was quickly connected to the uh, Black Lives Matter movement uh, and touched off days of pretty intense rioting. Um, just yesterday, um, we are taping this on Tuesday. You'll hear it on Wednesday. Monday is yesterday. Uh, we actually had a judge um, that uh, did not, uh, a judge that said uh, in his verdict that the state had failed to prove its case uh, on any of the charges that were brought um, and it's it's worth just quickly revisiting the the highlights of this case, the facts of the case. Um, Peter uh, Moskos, and I, I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. I think I did. Matt is, is nodding. Uh, runs this really fantastic blog called Cop in the Hood. You should totally check it out. He's a, a social science professor uh, and a former Baltimore cop uh, and gives a lot of great perspectives uh, on a number of these issues. And he actually summarized a lot of the key facts of the case. Uh, police spotted um, Police spotted Gray uh, a known, on a known drug corner. 
Uh, Gay took off running, which is not illegal, but gives police reasonable suspicion and grounds for a search. Uh, He was found to have a knife once he was taken into custody, uh, but he was almost certainly largely arrested because cops don't like to have you run from them. uh, And they're all too happy to lock you up uh, when you when you make them break a sweat. Uh, video evidence shot by a bystander, not a lapel camera, more on that later, suggests that Gay was, Gray was actually put into the truck unharmed, but restrained. It was no seatbelt, but he was put into the truck unharmed. Uh, and that he, somewhere along the line on this ride, suffered uh, head, and sp- head and spinal injuries, uh, which he would later pass away from. Uh, and there's one quote in here, it is, uh, and from Peter, and it says, it is department policy to seatbelt suspects, but it is not the law. What does this mean? It's not clear. Is the, is the failure to belt uh, the prisoner negligence? Uh, we'll see, but it might be a stretch. I think there are plenty of issues to talk about here. What I really have some concern about, and the reason I wanted to chat about this, isn't because I think that it was inappropriate to acquit the officer yesterday. You could totally, it sounds as though there is a reasonable argument to say that they arrested him uh, based on legal grounds, uh, that he died, unfortunate circumstances, um, and that perhaps, perhaps, uh, rather than just negligence on the cop's part, it was just bureaucratic incompetence. And maybe there needs to be something that happens. Dude, they broke his spine. I, listen. They I, broke his spine. You say, they, you say they broke his spine. His, his spine His, his spine, spine broke. Done his spine broke. broke. His spine broke in the truck. I don't. They it have, is not clear how it happened. Have but a, at any rate. They have a pattern at in, any rate, in Baltimore of, of I'm not, unbelting people, taking them on joyrides to rough them well, up. Well, this is That's actually, and Peter actually pushed back on that. He said that it's not a thing. He said he's never heard of this uh, rough ride phrase. Um, and this, look, this is Peter's perspective. And Peter is a former cop. So, you know, maybe maybe that's coloring his perspective a bit. I think what's important to me, though, is that we do have a situation where the D.A. did rush to charge some people. And she found six people, uh, 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 United Colors of Benetton, three white dudes, um, two black guys and a black woman, all charged in this case. Uh, And it's not clear any of those charges will stick. Um, but this was quickly connected to various other uh, Black Lives Matter things. And we've I've seen stories today, like CBS uh, this morning, uh, there was a piece saying uh, most cops charged in shootings are not found guilty. Um, and this is true. And this is something that we ought to be concerned about. But I do wonder if there isn't something uh, problematic about trying to string together every single one of these cases uh, and suggest that there is a clear and obvious pattern of one particular thing happening when in some of these cases, uh, when in fact you, you sort of elevate these cases to, to uh, elevate these people to sainthood and say, this is the one, look, it was totally wrong. When it is, when it is discredited, does that not create a problem for you? It, it, it it should create a problem because I mean, Marilyn Mosby, who was the uh, state's attorney um, who announced the charges against the six officers literally said in her press conference and I found the quote, uh, to the people of Baltimore and demonstrators across America, I heard your call for no justice, no peace. I mean, so we have a, we have a state's attorney announcing when she is announcing that, that six people, six cops will be tried. And again, this is not to say that they shouldn't be tried, but she is explicitly saying she is responding to, uh, you know, these protests and this kind of the, the Black Lives Matter at picking up this case. And she said, okay, you know, all right, well, we'll, it was, and this happened really fast. And there were a lot of people that are not sort of the Heather McDonald, you know, reflexively, you know, Steve Dunleavy pro-comp. 
that said, geez, this is a little, little quick here. I mean, and when I, what I didn't know about this, when I saw that Edward Nero, uh, uh, was, was acquitted, I knew sort of the broad strokes of it. And then I read about the verdict and there is, there is a dispute whether he ever even touched Freddie Gray. Yeah. They said that his attorneys say he handed him his, his inhaler. And that was the extent of the contact. Again, this does not mean this was very, very, very poorly handled. Absolutely. And how the, how this happened is still baffling to everyone. That's why you get these kind of rough ride, um, you know, ideas. Is that like an urban legend? I don't know. That, you know, but um, what's his name? Uh, 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 Moscos mm-hmm. pointed out that his neck didn't, didn't snap. Uh, he said the, the nerves were, were broken and there's really no recovering from that. And he died as a result of severe impact to his neck. It's similar to he says similar to a driving injury. Now, how that happened is pretty is, is pretty important. Yeah. It is something that people don't focus on because, as Camille says, it is being lumped in with everything else. And I think that we've talked about this on the show before, is that I am not in any sense an apologist for for cops, especially you know, cops in Baltimore that have a pretty bad track record. Absolutely. It, but it is it is worth pointing out that, you know, we have to look at these things, you know, as individual cases. And I fear that, you know, oh, it's Freddie Gray. Oh, it's the, the woman um, in Texas who died in a, a cell. Uh, what's her name? Sa- Sandra Blad. Sa- Sa- yeah, yeah. She, she's, the you know, like DeRay McKesson, I, mm-hmm. I know your favorite person, had been tweeting about that, that you know, she had probably been murdered in her cell. Like yeah. everyone's gone yeah. completely. Lee Talk Barker's about conspiracy about theories. Yeah. And I, and I, I advise everybody look at DeRay McKesson's interview uh, with Megyn Kelly last night in which she kind of brusquely cut him off when she said, well, okay, if you think this was a racist and a wrong verdict, what did the police officer, Edward Nero, do wrong right. that you think he should be prosecuted for? And he did not have an answer, yeah. which suggests to me that all of this stuff is becoming this melange of it's all the same thing. And we just have to get convictions to show that the police are on the right side of justice. I, um, it's important to point out that this officer probably was the least connected to the, to the case. There was, this, this was the biggest mm-hmm. stretch of, of the cases. This is by no means, uh, done. There's going to be three more officers, uh, who are out there. And, and I think it's, it, it's pretty well understood that his individual case was a case of the prosecutor getting too far out, over the skis, uh, 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 so to uh, so to speak. Um, I think it's perfectly healthy to be suspicious of someone who dies in police custody. Totally, totally, sure, um, absolutely, and true. that the doubt. preponderance—not preponderance—that's the wrong word. Um, it should be investigate the hell out of everything. Um, yeah. I think the police van should have cameras, jail cells should have cameras, and all this kind of stuff. I grew up next to a uh, police force in Signal Hill, California. That killed a uh, uh, black kid uh, uh, running uh, back in the local football team, uh, pulled him over for drunk driving, although he wasn't drunk, uh, and then staged a hanging in his cell um, and after beating the hell out of him um, and then not only uh, got away with it, but then sued his parents for uh, uh, accusing them of uh, of uh, hurting him in jail. Um, and, you know, I, I grew up next to cops who bragged about. Uh, you know how great it was when you got to pull over a black guy because you could go beat the hell out of him, and who's going to believe you? Yeah. Or the black guy, and the black guy wasn't what the word that they used, Camille. By the way, um, back there in Long Beach, uh, back hmm. back in the day, I-, I wonder what that word could be. Matt uh, Welch. So I have a built-in 
kind of uh, uh, skepticism about people who died in mysterious circumstances in police custody. Sure. Um, Got to prove it. So go to jail yeah, yeah. or go to go to the the go to court and yeah. let's see if these other guys or get some kind of negligent kind of thing. That one truth is beyond the fact that we should have uh, more cameras everywhere, uh, and not just because it like shows police doing bad things, but it shows uh, you know bullshit artists who try to shake down police forces uh, that they're bullshitting about it, and, mm-hmm. it, and it reduces their action by sure. quite a bit, which I think is a great thing. Um, uh, but another thing to think about just t- today, again, this is Tuesday on the on the local uh, WNYC Brian Lehrer show, uh, police chief Bratton, William Bratton here uh, in New York City said, we've never seen such a coordinated uh, uh, attack against every element of the criminal justice system. Hmm. We are we are right now in full Heather McDonald backlash yeah. over the baby steps at long overdue righteous police reform right now and i and i do worry about yeah. that part uh part of that you could say you can lie on the on the feet of everyone who wants to impugn racism for something that's much more structural which i think is totally appropriate because you can't uh, prosecute or you can't divine what is in a man's heart but you can change the structure of uh incentives and things like that but i think people should be going after um uh, you know, the way that prosecutors, cops and other people are allowed to lie with impunity on the witness stand without sanction. Sure. And a bunch of the other structural things out there, which I think in long term will get you a hell of a lot more towards justice than simply crying racism at every single uh, opportunity, assuming that every prosecution of a cop is is correct and righteous um, and then kind of get, taking your ball and going home when you don't get yeah. to a specific and, and And to be fair to Peter, again, you should totally go to Cop in the Hood. You should read his piece. You should send him a note and tell him I sent you there so um, I, I can get some some brownie points with him. Um, but uh, it's it's a really good piece. He does, of course, acknowledge the the fact that when a police officer takes someone into custody, that person is their responsibility and getting them back to wherever they're headed um, safely and whole um, is their responsibility as well. Restrain them properly, put them in the vehicle properly. So there, there's plenty to investigate here, but I think you're right, Matt. Um, and, and it sounds like we're all in agreement here. I, but, but to take it a step further, and perhaps we don't agree, I think the legacy of the Black Lives Matter movement will, be, will have been um, to, yes, make a lot of noise about these issues and potentially, maybe, um, despite themselves, to score some modest reforms. Um, but there really do seem to be some missed opportunities here. Taser, um, which is apparently the largest um, company uh, manufacturing these police lapel cameras, uh, has been spending tremendous amounts of money lobbying um, to try to lobbying various police departments. I believe there's federal lobbying going on as well to try to get something done. Um, how do you not like join forces with them if you're supposed to care about these issues so that you can do something, accomplish something meaningful, like getting cameras on cops. Like that seems like a first order problem. Well, that seems like and, and something think, that is doable. I think and they're attainable. working on that problem. I mean, but, you, but, but, I, but I don't know that you can actually do both things and you certainly can't galvanize the public to be concerned about both things. One, the fetishizing of race in this country makes it the sort of thing when once that is injected into the conversation, once people like DeRay show up on television and are screaming that the reason this is a problem, and not necessarily screaming, but, but saying forcefully, um, that this is fundamentally a problem because of racism. Um, I, I think you do create a, a, a an obstacle. It's I, an I impediment think, to progress, fear, and it's not a spur. It's not I a catalyst. I fear that you're overreacting to their own media pronouncements 
and under paying attention to, which is a new, <laughs> new word, um, to actual work that's being done on the ground. If you look at the the sort of list of of criminal justice reform demands, a list of ten things uh-huh. that came out of the Black Lives, you agree with eight of them. That, uh, this and, is totally true, and absolutely, and they are working on yeah. them on, on local levels. But and, those, but those other, but those other two commandments, like, could be really problematic, and they could be significant enough. They could, de- they could, they could derail the other eight things that I care about, that we mutually care about. Like, and that's my argument. It's not that they're wrong to so be concerned about So activists have to police. agree with Camille Foster well, they, 100% of the way? If they want to be effective, they probably ought to. I'm right about most things. I'm right about most things. Um, but but I, I've, been on this, I've been on this horse for a little bit. Um, some idiot wrote this. this is, it's time for that. Does someone have something? Yeah, let's go. What, what do you got yeah, for me? Something. Bill Crystal. Yeah, God damn it, Bill Crystal. Oh, boy. I love you, Bill Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Weeping. Uh, no, uh, the the latest Weekly Standard um, uh, magazine. It might even be the 1,000th issue. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, they recently had that, so maybe it is that one. Features, an, uh, uh, I believe, a cover story from Jay Cost uh, advocating – a uh, you know, a bull moose style third party run at long last, uh, and then there's an editor's note from Bill Crystal um, called "My God, He Does This." He called a choice, not an echo. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Let's uh, <laughs> there's a there's going to be a short list of headlines that we never need to see again. Uh, modest proposal, uh, a choice, not an echo. Uh, why uh, fill in the blank matters? Any others there, Moynihan, that we should uh, get rid of uh, forever? Agonistes, <laughs> you know, anything that ends with agonistes. Yeah, I think you've covered it though. But in, in defense in, in, of fill in the in blank, defa- in, in defense of, and I mean, I really go back to the first one. If you're making Phyllis Schlafly references, you're really not talking to anyone <laughs> under the age of 78. So it's just a bad headline choice from a marketing perspective. So uh, Bill Crystal here, who is uh, this uh, sort of self-appointed leader of the Never Trump faction, along with uh, the political consultant Rick Wilson, who's hilarious on Twitter, and everyone should follow him. Um, Crystal is sitting there, and uh, and and Wilson too. They are saying that you know it's perfect moment for an independent candidate. We have everything set up; it's ready to go. We just need one. <laughs> uh, he's like literally a, a, a reserved renegade party dot com, and oh when boy. you and when you click on it, it goes to Never Trump or Hillary. I don't know if they do Never or Nor or there. Uh, there, I'll read a, a tiny bit from this uh, verbiage because it always has to be along with a choice, not an echo. This totally portentous uh, type of uh, of tone. Um, uh, so we who refuse to acquiesce in this horrible choice, we renegade citizens who put country and not party first. Can you believe uh, Bill Crystal? Uh, in this respect, and only in this respect, we echo an earlier renegade. We disdained to conceal our views and aims. Let the ruling parties tremble at a popular revolution writes Bill Crystal. We have nothing to lose but our partisan chains. We have a nation to win. Enough, Bill Crystal, for crying out wow. loud. I mean, that is grimace-level <laughs> purple prose. I mean, it is, I mean, it's beyond grimace. It's uh, aubergine. It's so purple. Um, yeah, that's, that's pretty ridiculous. But I like, I mean, the overarching sentiment that the parties are horrible and one shouldn't um, feel obliged to vote for the party just because it's the party is right but i think everything else is wrong and this idea that it is the moment what evidence is there that this is the moment because no i mean they are literally going around with a tin cup and saying hey paul ryan you want to do it 
no, not interested. Hey, Mitt Romney, want to do it? No, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm cool. I think they're like probably at Lamar Alexander's house today. I mean, it's just <laughs> not, it's insane. It's like you have nothing. One has to, you know, accept reality at, at a certain point and say, you know, the only other option is actually the Libertarian Party, and uh, or you got to stay home. And mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I advise people to stay home too. Stay, staying home is a, is sometimes an effective choice. It's a, uh, no, it's a choice. It is still a choice. Totally. Moynihan, did you have something else? Uh, no, I, <laughs> that's, that's I read okay. so much. I read so much stupid stuff this week that I, I'm, you know, when you go like into a record store and you have like 15, <laughs> 20 years ago, you had 15 you never know that you wanted to buy there yeah. and you can't remember them right when you get there. That's kind of how I feel right now. So yeah. yeah, well, that's, it's okay. I forgive you. Um, it's also old age. That's what that is. Yeah. It's also, I'm very old. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I did want to take the opportunity and parting shots to talk about my, uh, my favorite thing that I've read this week, and it was a piece uh, in the Atlantic, uh, and the title of that piece was "End the Imperial Imperial Pe- Presidency Before It's Too Late." Um, you should go find that piece. Uh, you should read it. Uh, it's fantastic and phenomenal, and hits upon a number of the themes uh, that we've talked about. I believe her name is uh, Nadine uh, Ajaka. Is that right? No. Yeah, Nadine Ajaka. If I mispronounced it, I'm sorry, but I praised your work. Uh, there are certainly some things in there that that that. That violate can Camille I, Foster's principles. Can I, can I principles, interrupt you, uh, Camille? Because I, I had to it. look this up. Uh, end the imperial presidency before it's too late. And the Atlantic is by Connor Friedersdorf. Oh, whoa! Yeah, whoa. yeah that's is a that, big. Mistake. Are you sure? That, I, well, Sounds like a Connor joint. I, it does no, sound like Connor. Norway, they're auto translating that name to Connor Friedersdorf. Then yes, huh? <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, yeah, I, that's, that's what I, I'm I stand corrected. It's by Connor Friedersdorf, which makes a tremendous amount of sense because he is fantastic and great. Um, I was certain that that was the byline that I saw. Um, I made a note. But if I'm wrong, so be it. Uh, in either case, the article is fantastic and you should read it. Um, and uh, yeah, that is the, that's the best thing I read this week. So yeah. Anybody else got anything good before that's we nice. go? Uh, we done? Is that well, it? I, 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 I'm going to read that Frieders the piece, but I mean, everybody um, should go read uh, – the uh, uh, Robert Kagan piece and get mad at it because um, everyone's, <laughs> yes, praising, everyone's praising this thing. Yeah, and if you've ma- if you've made it this far into the podcast, you are a political nerd and you've probably read it. Um, so tweet at us and tell us uh, why it pissed you off because I'm sure it did. Yeah, uh, can I quote from uh, a Robert Kagan uh, quickly, please? When the plague descended on Thebes, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> Oedipus <laughs> sent his brother-in-law to the Delphic Oracle to discover the cause. <sighs> Yeah, I, I just, I just, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. The last shout out I want to point people to since you gave the opportunity is uh, the Libertarian Party convention is happening uh, beginning on Thursday of this week. It'll wrap up on Sunday or Monday. Uh, Reason is covering the hell out of it. Brian Doherty leading the way, but I'll also be down there. And for those who are interested in that kind of weird crap, Reason.com. Yeah, check out Reason.com. Check out Matt's coverage. I'm sure we'll talk about it next week. Uh, and with that... We on our way out of here. Uh, check us out at wethefifth.com. Hit us on Twitter at wethefifth. Tell us what, what, what you're thinking. Subscribe. Rate the show. Give us five stars. Tell your friends about us. Tell your mom. Come back next week. We'll holla at you. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.